Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is Bug House. Tonight's performance, April 2nd, 2018, features Chris Churchill, David Himmel, Andy Diamond, Reza McDonald, Emily Belden, and Jamie Buell. What are you about to see? What is Bug House? Um, David and I, David Himmel, there's David Himmel, he is the co-editor of literateape.com. Um, we got to talking one day and realized that the discourse of argument in this country right now is broken. It's dysfunctional. Uh, if you look at Facebook, which is where we do most of our arguing, because most people don't have the balls to actually argue in person because you might get punched if you talk the way you did on the internet. Lies. Yes? Lies. You know? And what we realized is that it's broken because no one's trying to persuade anybody. Everybody's just trying to yell at everybody. It's like, I'm right, you're wrong, and we're going to just keep yelling at each other. And that's just such a bad... Because no one, as far as I know, I've never met anyone who actually changed their mind or behavior based on being screamed at. I mean, maybe if, you know, if you're in The Walking Dead and it's Negan, but he doesn't scream. <laughs> He's very persuasive. So, what we decided was we went back in time and we realized in 1910, 1911, in Chicago, in fact, Washington Square Park was dubbed Bug House Square. And Bug House is a pejorative for a mental hospital. And the reason it was called Bug House Square, the time period, the, the politics of that time period were very contentious, just like today. And what happened was people, radicals and free thinkers and really loud people would get on soap boxes, actual boxes that they deposited soap, and they would stand on them and they would argue the issues of the day in the park. And that was Bug House Square. And that was the art of persuasion. It wasn't the art of just screaming someone's argument down. It was about making an argument that actually was designed to persuade somebody's perspective. That was the idea. So David and I decided it needs to be brought back. Now, they still have. If you ever go to Washington Square Park, I think once a month they actually still have the Bug House Square debates. So we stole them because this is art and it's America and that's how it works. This is Bug House! We have a great debate in this country right now whether or not hate speech is worse for our democracy than the concept of censorship. There's a great, on, on, and, and, it, and the thing that's interesting is that, and, and maybe this, this is just where my proclivities lie. I'm very progressive, but what I see is that the extremes on either side of the right and left want to censor what they consider hate speech on all levels. So the question at point, debated by Chris Churchill and David Himmel, will be, which is worse for democracy? censorship or the existence of hate speech. Ladies and gentlemen, David Himmel. Give it a
Okay, listen up, faggots. I want to talk to you about a few things. Important things. Okay, simpletons, these things are important. Things that are going to make our country great. And not great in the way that that orange monster with the tiny hands and tiny dong and his band of sexist, racist, homophobic, rapist criminals talk about, and not in the way those snowflakes who want tranny boys wearing dresses peeing sitting down in my bathroom. Okay, not the way they want it. Because get this, that old bag of menopause, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> she's not gonna be your president ever. And there's a good chance your boy Bernie, that old Jew, he won't be occupying the White House either. He's too busy running the banks and movie studios with the rest of his kind. Look, I have a point of view. I have a point of view and a whole lot of opinions and you need to hear them. My opinions are exactly what this country needs. And they're so simple, even the retards at CNN can't screw up reporting on them. The great America I'm talking about is the one that is truly a great democracy. And for a truly great democracy to take shape, we have to listen to each other. Really listen. Hey, hey, do you hear me? Do you hear me, you goddamn fucking fat or skinny pussy? Do you fucking hear me? <laughs> Listen to me. I'm trying to make my case for all people in America to have a voice. Yeah, even the wetbacks and the soulless idiot teenagers afraid of a few fucking guns. Fucking skinhead lesbos. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Are you still listening to me? Hey. Hey, what are you, were you losers homeschooled or something? Are you listening to me? Are you daydreaming about ISIS or how hot Ivanka and Melania Trump, how, how hot their scissor... Scissor fucking session would be? Yes. Is that what you're thinking about? Yes. Because I'm thinking about it now. It's fucking hot. But that's not what I'm talking about, okay? Listen. It doesn't matter that Black Panther and President Barack Hussein Obama made it okay that, that we can finally cancel Black History Month. And no, I don't think that we need a White History Month. I don't think there should be an insert race here History Month for anything. Because that means that we're not all equal. And there's a good chance that some group will be left out. Like there are only 12 months in the year. So we could easily forget like a WAP history month or a Gook history month or a San Jockey history month. You see? I'm talking about democracy. Everyone is equal. Even those actors who pretended to be dead during the Sandy Hook shooting. Yeah. Duh. You have to listen to me because I'm going to listen to you. That's how democracy works. We have to listen to each other so we can reach reasonable conclusions, you bumbling fucktards. I mean, I'm only going to listen to you if you listen to me. So you're listening to me, right, you fucking cock nozzles? You're listening. No, of course you're not listening. Because the moment that someone insults you or makes insulting claims against a group of people or accuses people of being things or doing things that they may or may not have done with vitriol in lieu of fact, you tune out. Hate speech is static on the airwaves. Static prevents a message from getting through. Hate is not a crime. Even some hate speech is not criminal. But more and more hate speech, if not criminal, is becoming inflammatory. And it's inciting more hate speech that is more dangerous and that begets more hate which inspires more hateful actions. Democracy is meant to allow all people to have a voice. Hate speech, not charge differing opinions, but speech, but hate speech that drowns out all democracy. That's what we're talking about here. It kills the ability to communicate across the aisle, across the tracks. 
Democracy in its most pure form is a happy medium, or middle ground at least. And to reach that ground, we must be aware of what hate speech does and hold those who spew it accountable through fact-checking or, in many cases, online, logging off or turning down the volume. Everyone has a soapbox now. Either ignore, the, either ignore the orators shouting hate speech from theirs or kick it out from under them. If we don't, democracy will remain an elusive butterfly. Got it? And just so we're clear, saying that the Ghostbusters reboot didn't suck, or say the Ghostbusters reboot didn't suck because it starred four women, okay? It sucked because it's a shit movie that happened to star four women. That's not hate speech. That's a fair critique of a really fucking shitty film. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah! All right, David Himmel. Woo! All right, going all the way with it, ladies and gentlemen. On the flip side of the argument, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Churchill. Come on. Hi guys, I'm Chris. Um, sorry, fucking with the mic. Mm -hmm. um, so he said I'm a trolley driver, and I have been for the last 20 years, but I also teach a couple of classes over at, uh, at Northeastern. I am an MA, I have an MA in CMT at NEIU, and that is a lot of letters. But I am, I am trying to make things quicker because if you go more than 20% over your time here, it's like seven minutes, and like 20% is like, uh, like it's like an hour and a half. I'm, I don't know, math wasn't my major. Um, Don has to give you a rusty trombone. And if you do not know what a rusty trombone is, look it up. All right. Um, and, and so actually, yes, I, I have a master's degree in communication. Um, and uh, I uh, teach intro to communication at Northeastern Illinois University now. Um, I feel like I, I feel like I want to raise this up, Don, but uh, I feel like I'm staring at the floor, and I don't want to mess up your situation here. Thank you. All right, now now we'll do it like, uh, like Lemmy from Motorhead, way up here. Um, but anyway, so I said the rusty trombone thing because I didn't know whether any of you guys were going to like that. I don't know if any of you know what I'm talking about. I say rusty trombone, but I said it because I've lived my entire life lucky enough to say whatever the fuck I want and just deal with the consequences later, right? Um, that's just uh, kind of uh, how I've done it. So, uh, as a person with a master's degree in communication, media, and theater, and teaching uh, communication, that kind of makes me sort of similar to the, uh, the uh, free speech version of a card-carrying member of the NRA. Uh, I think uh, we don't take free speech away from people. We don't need less free speech. We need more free speech to fix these things. So here I come to uh, defend uh, your right to say things that are, are silly, stupid, and even painful. What does that say? <gasps> it says Himmel's a sex offender. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, that's, a weird, that's weird. I don't know why that was on my card. Um, I have a research team. It's, I don't know. Um, so, I want to talk about two F words and an N word. That's uh, what we're going to deal with right now. We're going to talk about the word fuck. We're going to talk about the word fire, and we're going to talk about the N-word. That's right. I did not censor myself. I made a choice. And we're going to talk about that. So fuck, okay? Fuck. We can all say it. I love to say it. I say it all the time. But I don't say it in front of my dad. He's a preacher. I don't say it in front of little kids, because I don't want them to tell their parents uh, that uh, this uh, weird guy on the trolley was saying fuck. 
Oh, that's Riley, and now I'm in trouble with their parents. It's, uh, it's just right for some circumstances, of course, but it's your choice to say it and deal with the consequences. Exactly. So, do we censor? I'll come back to that later. Fire. You've heard the, uh, the old argument that you don't yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, that's some sort of, uh, they talk about, uh, that's like a, a, a stipulation. It's a thing that, that you know, you, you don't, you have free speech, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater because that causes problems. It's inflammatory, it's dangerous, it'll cause people to stand up, run out of the theater, and trample each other. But guess what? The instant somebody yells fire in a crowded theater, if we all have free speech, somebody can stand up and say, no, there's not. You're a fucking idiot. Right? That's free speech. Thank you. Censor it? No, we'll come back to that. No. Now, now, the N-word. Here's one of my favorite things, uh, one of my favorite stories to tell about why censorship isn't effective as consequences. Um, I was coming home from work one night. I got out of my car uh, at the corner of uh, Farwell and Seeley in Rogers Park, and I recognized a couple of people, a couple of people from my building. They were uh, a couple of, uh, of young African-American women and a, a middle-aged white man from the next building over who always walked the same little doggy everywhere. And they were in an argument about something. And it wasn't going well in general for the white man. I'll just say that. But then, he threw out the N-word. And guess what happened? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, first of all, the woman he said it to was about this tall. And she laid him the fuck out. And guess what? He won't do that again, will he? That's called consequences. Right? So, here we go. My adapted NRA slogans for free speech. We don't need less free speech. We need more. Right? What is the best way to stop a bad person who's saying whatever they want to? A good person who says whatever they want to. Right? Yeah. And if saying what you want becomes illegal, then only criminals will say what they want. Uh, what? Did you understand? I'm going to give that all a second to settle in, you guys. Okay? Now, uh, my thought is, we, at this stage in American history, we are like coddled babies when it comes to free speech, okay? Because really, uh, we get told what to do, first of all, we get told what to say, nobody likes being told what to say, so immediately the knee-jerk reaction is, don't tell me to do that, now I'm gonna say the shittier thing to somebody, now I'm gonna be even more divisive, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna say things that will make us even less likely to ever find uh, common ground. But that's because, we uh, have these sort of artificially created consequences, these artificially imposed consequences. That's what censorship is. It's not if you say that, that lady's gonna lay you out. What it is, is if you say the bad thing, you're gonna be in trouble, or you're gonna be under arrest, or you're gonna be fined for something. And that doesn't really connect what you've said to the consequences, does it? So, that does not help us become a wiser, more effective member of democracy. What does? 
consequences, just like I've been saying. So let's go back to those uh, examples there. Uh, saying fuck in front of a little kid. Uh, you say it, you might get, I don't know, hit by the mother, you might get scolded, you might not get tipped on your trolley ride that day, you might lose a few bucks, you know? You might get uh, called into your superior's office, why'd you say fuck to a little kid, you know? What about fire? Yeah, we've got the whole thing with fire. It's, if you say fire in a crowded theater, somebody else can say, you're a dick for trying to make us all hurt each other. You're a dick for trying to incite a riot. You're a bad person that we will not hang out with anymore, and we will not let you in this movie theater anymore if you keep doing that. That's a consequence. And of course, the other one, you know. Don't do that, you'll get it. Yeah. All right, so let me see if I got anything else to say. I don't think so. So yeah, a good guy with free speech is the only thing that can defeat a bad guy with free, yeah, we got that. And, and I'll leave you with Martin Luther King. Uh, he says, darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can do that. I, I hope you can draw that conclusion to free speech. We want the good free speech to drive out the bad free speech. And by the way, if any of you guys are thinking, well, wait a minute, there's all this, this fake news out there, there are all these people starting uh, uh, fake stories and conspiracy theories. Well, how about you all learn some critical thinking, those of you guys who are uh, worried about that sort of thing. Maybe critical thinking is something we can teach in addition to free speech. Anyway. Yeah, Himmel. Oh, Hitler. Himmel is Hitler. Um, and, uh, oh, and I saw him taking a bribe from Tony Preckwinkle. To shoot people from a deer blind. That's a weird thing to do. Why did you do that? All right. I think that's it. I think, I think I made my point. my phone. Alright, good. Yes, Chris Churchill. Alright, so, Trudy. Yes, sir. You have a choice. Yes, I do. To decide which one was the most persuasive. So was it David Himmel who says that hate speech is worse for democracy, or was it Chris Churchill who believes that censorship is worse for democracy? Who, in your opinion, wins the bout? So you're going to go with Chris Churchill. I've never won anything before. All right, the jo the jo Trudy has now awarded the prize to Chris Churchill. Chris Churchill wins the bout. With Woody Allen, with Weinstein, with all of the obvious artists who have created amazing work. I mean, this is nothing new. I mean... Charlie Chaplin married a 13-year-old. So it's, you know, this, this is not a new thing. Yeah, he did, I know, that's crazy that you did, but he did, you know. I mean, but the question becomes, and the question is, is can I enjoy watching, knowing that Woody Allen, his guilt or innocence is not, not the point. Can I, can I enjoy watching Manhattan? knowing that he married his stepdaughter. If you know Manhattan, you understand why that's a conflict. You know, can I enjoy Rosemary's Baby knowing that Roman Polanski admittedly 
drugged and raped a 13-year-old and then left the country so he wouldn't get arrested. Can I enjoy the film? Can I enjoy the art? So the question at point, argued by Andy Diamond and Reese McDonald, is does the artist's crimes negate the art? As a child of the 70s, growing up in a stamped out split level in the lily white suburbs, Fat Albert and chocolate pudding pretty much anchored my Saturday mornings. My parents would sleep in safe in the knowledge that they could leave my brother and me to our own devices until about 10 a.m. or so before we'd kill each other because there wasn't a single crevice in that split level from which they couldn't hear what we were up to. We, of course, simply thought that my mother had ESP because what other explanation could there be for the fact that when we would try to sneak Twinkies for breakfast, tiptoeing oh so quietly across the linoleum, opening the pantry ever so slowly to circumvent the built-in alarm system of squeaky hinges, carefully holding the corner of the cellophane wrapping like we were handling forensic evidence so that there would be no telltale crackling. And just as we would silently lift one out of the box, my mother's disembodied voice would float down the stairs. Put down the Twinkie and have some cereal for breakfast. So we would pour ourselves huge bowls of golden grams, grumbling because mom refused to buy Count Chocula and told us to count ourselves lucky that she bought cereal with any sugar at all. And we would sit down in front of the television to watch Fat Albert. There were other cartoons too, of course, but it was Fat Albert that fascinated us. These kids didn't look like us. And not just because of skin color, although that alone fascinated us. Because even though we knew that not everyone looked like us, we didn't see much evidence of that in our everyday lily-white suburban lives. And even if these kids were cartoons, they upped our weekly diversity experience by about 100%. (laughs) But it was more than that. These kids actually lived in a city not just next to a city where you might go three times a year to see a play or a museum and then come home to your pink bedroom full of Laura Ingalls Wilder books. They didn't play in backyards, they played in junkyards. And there was nary a parent in sight. When they played hide and seek, they didn't hide over and over again in the toy closet or behind the couch. They hid in old refrigerators and used tire stacks and they moved as a pack. And if anyone messed with any of them, the whole pack would get involved. But in a supportive way, not a pugnacious, scary way. There was a confidence, a sophistication in the way they navigated a world that to our sheltered eyes seemed exotic. And yet they were kids too. With kid problems, we recognized and grappled with ourselves. And without even realizing it, we were learning that as kids, we all had more in common than not. And that was cool. And the Osmond brothers could go fuck themselves flying around their cartoon show in a freaking airplane with their whole squeaky clean mama's boy, we're just like you, except we're pop stars and we're going to stare soulfully into your bland suburban eyes. We had seen that shit before and it was tired. Na, 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 gonna have a good time. Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) And while we watched Fat Albert, there would be about a thousand commercials 
for Jell-O Instant Pudding. And Bill Cosby would be making goofy faces with a veritable rainbow of kids shoveling pudding into their gob holes. And if we couldn't have Twinkies at 8 in the morning, by God, we could have pudding. Because you didn't have to turn on the stove to make it. And when you ripped open the packet of dried pudding powder, it sounded like an instant oatmeal packet to the snack Nazis upstairs. And we would stick the milk in the freezer for a little while first so it would be really cold and the pudding would set faster and we could eat the whole big bowl, two spoons dipping in and out before my parents figured anything out. Chocolate pudding was my favorite dessert. And that was Saturday morning. Or at least it was, until Bill Cosby killed my childhood. Not when I actually was a child, not directly, but in a more insidious way, later, much later, when it was too late to cauterize the wound and grow some healthy scar tissue, too late to remake those golden memories that had been turned into a golden shower. <laughs> Because really, can you ever again see any of Cosby's work in the same way? Let's take a look. Now that we know what really goes through Bill Cosby's mind, that's good. That's fine. Come on, give it a sec. All right. See, now that you know what really goes through Bill Cosby's mind, you just know that Fat Albert grew up to be a sad, soft man-child with too much estrogen, moobs, and a stash of porn under the floorboards. Because you know he ain't getting any, and he clearly still lives with his mother. So he doesn't have the money or the privacy for hookers. <laughs> So he hangs around schoolyards, reminiscing sadly about the glory days when he was the one everyone looked up to, and wondering how it all went wrong, offering candy to the children with a soft man-child smile, and luring them in with his gentle giant act. Na na na, boys and girls, gonna have a good time. <laughs> and then there was the iconic 80s sitcom. I went on the internet to look for some clips to see if there was any way to salvage one of my all-time favorite shows. And here's the first thing that came up. Okay, look at that, because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. So for those of you who don't speak German, by the way, you saw what was up there. Schlangendoktor translates literally into snake doctor, which is appropriately terrifying. And if you're thinking that schlong sounds a bit like schlong, that's because you're right. <laughs> It's not even metaphorical. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word schlong, and I quote, as a man's penis. 
commonly used as vulgar slang from the Yiddish word schlange and the high middle German word slange, meaning snake. So basically, the man cast himself as a gynecologist on a show that the Germans, without a trace of irony, called The Penis Doctor. <laughs> and the opening sequence shows him leering like he's at a veritable smorgasbord of carefully groomed rape bait. And he's trying to decide where to stick his fork first. How the hell did we collectively miss what was going on? <laughs> That, folks, at the very beginning of that clip, that is a premature O face. Like he literally cannot contain himself, which is probably why they start out showing him from the waist up and then zoom way back for the full body shots. This isn't a family, it's a harem. And what is with that little finger wiggle he's doing with Lisa Bonet? It looks like part of a ritual deflowering, where he's demonstrating what's about to happen to her and she's doing her best to pretend it's an honor. No wonder she left the show after only one season and went and did that whole pornographic angel heart voodoo movie thing. Meanwhile, Theo comes in and the look they give each other is like, Theo, you're about to become a man now. You take the cougar and I'm gonna treat myself to that tasty little filly over there. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> But really, honestly, when all is said and done, the worst betrayal is the pudding. Because now every time I go to the store, those shelves full of jello mix mock me with their jaunty red circus letters. Like we don't all know that this is the grocery aisle where innocence goes to die. <laughs> I have traumatic flashbacks to those stupid commercials and all I can see is that premature O face and all those adorable little gob holes. And I feel an urgent need to warn that veritable United Nations of children, no, don't taste the rainbow. Stop shoveling the pudding into those gob holes because God knows what he slipped into the pudding. And after the pudding, he's going to want to slip something else entirely into your gob hole and probably into some other holes too. Run! <laughs> and then it hits me all over again that pudding can never be the same. Fuck the man's art. Bill Cosby has fucking killed dessert. <laughs> This is how he stole our collective innocence. This is why we can never again look at this man's oeuvre without needing to take a shower. Dessert is one of the primal comforts of childhood, a connection to that last, best, most innocent part of our adult selves. And Cosby just slipped at a roofie, leaving us to feel groggy and dirty as we contemplate the iconic role he once played in our cultural past. Because let's face it, once we lose the pudding, it's a slippery slope to, say, chocolate mousse or creme brulee. Even cannoli, with its schlangen form, <laughs> and oozing white cream, is enough to send me running to Weight Watchers. And even then we're fucked, because I'm terrified that I'm going to run into Fat Albert there. Thank you. Uh, yeah! All right, reach the total! Oh my God. That is just, I can't look at that anymore. All right, for the, for the flip side, ladies and gentlemen, Andy, come on! All right. 
Bring it. Come on. All right. Are there any fans of Psycho out there? Yeah. Psycho. North by Northwest. Yes. The Birds. Yeah. Rebecca, Shadow of the Doubt, Annie Hitchcock. Yes? Hitchcock. How about Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby? Yes. yes. The song stylings of Frank Sinatra. Yeah. And then, of course, who grew up with the wonder that was the Cosby Show? Okay. Hitchcock, known to psychologically bully his leading ladies. Roman Polanski raped a 13-year-old girl and fled the U.S. My dad adored Sinatra, raised me singing along to his music, but could never hear Sinatra tune without saying, you know, he beat up women, right? But... He never stopped listening and singing along because Sinatra, right? And you're not going to stop watching Hitchcock's films or suddenly disavow the genius of Chinatown. And this very week, as it happens, the jury's being selected for the retrial of Bill Cosby on sexual assault charges. Cosby, an iconic comedian whose success was a source of pride for generations of the black community, from the beloved recordings of his stand-up to being the first black actor to co-star in a TV drama in 1966 with I Spy, and of course the Fat Albert cartoons held a freaking jello pudding. <laughs> Here was a man, black man, walking through the world creating success upon success on his own terms. Then came the Cosby Show, and for the first time, we saw black doctors, lawyers, upper middle class, deeply functional black family on primetime TV. 1984, United States, we saw these images in the media for the first time. And if you were there, you know, the series changed the world as much as any TV show can because it changed perceptions. And these charges against Cosby, devastating to many of us for the very same reason. They changed our perception of the man. More on that later. So in a column last fall entitled, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men? A woman named Claire Dieterer wrote, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, Bill Cosby, William Burroughs, Richard Wagner, Sid Vicious, V.S. Nepal, John Galliano, Norman Mailer, Ezra Pound, Caravaggio, Floyd Mayweather, though if we start listing athletes, we'll never stop. And what about women? And immediately that list becomes a little more difficult, a little more tentative. Maybe Ann Sexton, Joan Crawford, Sylvia Plath. Does self-harm count? Okay, well, we'll go back to the men. Pablo Picasso, Max Ernst, Lead Belly, Miles Davis, Phil Spector. They did or said something awful and made something great. So the topic of the debate, does the artist's crimes affect the artist's work? Well, generally we understand it as, can we separate the art from the artist? We're told, idolize the art, not the artist. I'm here to tell you that the behavior of the artist is irrelevant to the artist's work. Whether merely bad behavior or criminal, it is irrelevant. One of the world's most famous and talented surrealists, Dali, was described by George Orwell as a good draftsman and a disgusting human being. <laughs> Bizarre and radical in many ways, Dali actually sent telegrams to Francisco Franco praising him sorry, for signing death warrants for prisoners during the Spanish Civil War. That is messed up. But does it change the effect of his groundbreaking work? And what of Pablo Picasso? Described as faithless, often brutal, cruel, perverse, he said, for me, there are only two kinds of women, goddesses and doormats. He called women machines for suffering. And the women who were in major relationships with him, two of them committed suicide. But what does that have to do with the power 
of his astonishing painting, Guernica. Caravaggio was a murderous thug. Ezra Pound was a pro-fascist and pro-Nazi anti-Semite. Virginia Woolf had an anti-Semitic streak. T.S. Eliot out and out hated Jews. Norman Mailer stabbed his wife. Walt Whitman likened the intellect and caliber of blacks to that of so many baboons. I love, love, love Preston Sturgis movies and so many classic Hollywood films from that time, but if you look at any scene with a black person and don't find it cringeworthy, I will fight you. <laughs> and, and don't get me started on Gauguin, who left his family to live on an island and fetishize the indigenous women. So, the list could go on. <clears throat> of course, all of the people in that last list are dead, and the times were different then. Living artists present a more complex situation, a more immediate moral conundrum. We often feel that we don't want to put even a dime into the pocket of insert fame artist here, that disgusting douche scum vile excuse for a human, that walking waste of skin. But as you see, these responses are emotional and address the question, can we appreciate art, even if it's created by someone who behaved deplorably, and clearly that is a different question. That is a question of our perceptions, our feelings, arguably a shift in societal norms, which is much bigger, but an entirely different question. We may suddenly find it difficult to enjoy the work of some of our favorite artists because of what we know about them, the times they are changing. Spacey, Kevin Spacey, accused of sexually assaulting boys and young men. Dustin Hoffman, accused of sexual misconduct, who's apologized for his bad behavior. And there are immediate repercussions these days, but still, come on, Spacey's an amazing actor. And whatever Dustin Hoffman did, it doesn't in any way affect his work in Tootsie. It's the number two ranking movie on the American uh, Film Institute's list of funniest American movies ever made. And remember, moral outrage it has a limited shelf life. People forgive or forget, and they simply move on. And at some point, remember, people started going back to Woody Allen movies. Mel Gibson got nominated for a freaking Oscar. Um, and then she turned the page. Yikes. And I was rolling. Uh, and people buy German cars. They stop for a while, but they buy German cars. All right, so we have to search our own souls, draw our own lines. But to my point, I think this is what is actually happening. Okay, so at New Year's, I was in a discussion about Blade Runner, which is arguably one of the coolest movies ever. Uh, and the women that I was talking with are some years younger than I, maybe that's revealing, I don't know, you be the judge. Um, and they were saying that the scene that we usually recognize as the love scene between Deckard and Rachel is actually an assault scene. <laughs> Say what now? You know the scene. So Deckard's sleeping, Rachel begins to play with the piano, he wakes up, she takes down her hair, he joins her. They share a moment about her memory of piano lessons. He kisses her, they stare longingly into each other's eyes. Then she breaks for the door. Now, if you know the film, you know that there's a continuous undercurrent of tension between Deckard and Rachel, sexual and otherwise. After all, it is film noir. So, and I'll speak for myself here, when Deckard stops Rachel at the door, he backs her up to kiss her. He actually flings her back a little bit in a very sexy, not particularly violent kind of way, and he demands that she tell him to kiss her. <laughs> Sploosh. Uh, seriously. <laughs> okay. Not to put 
put too fine a point in it, and probably TMI, I rather. The point is, however, the real point is that Blade Runner was made in 82, 1982. And the argument that was made to me was that now we see it through 21st century eyes. And in that moment, I was dismissive, which was a mistake. My apologies to those women, because there are 21st century eyes. The Me Too movement has risen because there's such a thing as 21st century eyes. But I stand by my statement, there is an objective reality. That film was and is whatever it was all along. The work is unchanged. However, we're living in a new era. We have a new perspective, a new lens through which we view the world and all things in it, art included. We have 21st century eyes, which brings us back to the topic. Though this era has been christened the era of accountability and that is new, history has endless examples of great art created by flawed, awful, sometimes criminal people. Uh, this is why I say that we're asking the wrong question. Actually, it's not that we're asking the wrong question, it's that we're asking an unnecessary question, a nonsensical question. Of course the artist's work is not affected by the artist's behavior or crimes. It's not the work that is affected. The work has not changed. We've changed. Our perspective has changed. There's a difference between holding an artist accountable for their behavior and the idea of that behavior actually affecting the work. The artist's crimes affects the audience. Not the work, the artist's crimes are irrelevant. Irrelevant? 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 What's that word? They don't count. They don't matter to the work. Yeah! All right. So we have, uh, we have a breakdown of uh, how Bill Cosby has completely fucked up pudding. <laughs> And the argument that... Uh, that pudding's just so good. The pudding is so good. No, that's not exactly what she said. So, Trudy, this is a tough one. This is a tough one. So, who, whose argument was most persuasive to you? Oy vey. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I'm Norwegian. Andy Diamond wins the round! And I didn't get my first tattoo until I was 42 years old, so it's definitely part of a trend, I guess. I don't know. Probably. Yeah, you know, well, the thing about it is my family, if you knew my family, have you ever seen the Sons of Anarchy? <laughs> the Sons of Anarchy, Harley, Harley Davidson, drug, long hair, tattoos, all, that was my family. That's what I grew up with, and I never got a tattoo, but I always wanted to get one. In fact, Mr. Himmel got his first tattoo on my birthday when I got my Littered Ape tattoo, which is right here. So, yes, it's, you know, there's, there's a thing going on. But the question is, is tat, are tattoos artistic? Is it an expression of art? Or is it just trashy? Emily Belden, give her a hand. Okay, so full disclosure, I just came back from an all-inclusive vacation in Puerto Vallarta. I did not stay at the Ritz-Carlton. And so, as you can imagine, 90% of the people staying at this resort had visible tattoos out and ready to party. 
I'm not going to pretend that every tattoo I saw in Mexico was good. In fact, I'm not going to pretend that any tattoo I saw in Mexico was good. Let me break it down. Nearly everyone had a tramp stamp, which is like, who is still doing this? Also, there were three Chicago Cubs tattoos spotted. And I mean, I get it, the World Series and all, but like, three seems like a high concentration of a very specific sport-themed tattoo at a hotel in Mexico that's not hosting a fan convention. Okay. So what else? Oh yes, I saw flame sleeves on a man who was not Guy Fieri. <laughs> and there was a woman in front of me ordering a pina colada with the words peace, grace, and beauty fanning out of an olive branch on her back. <laughs> I am not lying. Oh, and the guy we rented a jet ski from, he just had Ernesto printed in large old English font across his back, except it was slanting about 15 degrees to the left. See? Bad, very bad. But bad, my friends, does not mean trash. Case in point. Oh. This this is a piece of mail I received from my cousin. Her four-year-old daughter, Nora, wanted to send it to me. Allow me to open this and show this to you. The note that came with this drawing says, here is a portrait Nora drew of you. We hope that you like it. Okay, so this, this is a bad drawing of me. I get that she is four years old. I get that she is not Leonardo da Vinci, but if this is supposed to be a portrait of me, it's just not going to fly. It's just, it's just not. Is it cute? Is it sweet? Yes, it's all of those things, but it's bad. It's a bad drawing of me. Still though, I would never call this trash because to me, it means something. And to the artist who made it, Nora, it means something. And that's the lens through which we need to look at tattoos that aren't so great. <laughs> but let's set aside for a minute the Tweety Bird tramp stamps and the barbed wire sleeves. There are some good tattoos out there that are flat out gorgeous, that regardless of how you feel about putting ink into skin, if that same piece was done with, say, oil and canvas, the beauty would be indisputable. Let me remind you that tattoo artists are called that for a reason, artists. Notice that they're not referred to as tattooers or tattooists, they're called tattoo artists because they are trained in art. Most of them have a natural born drawing talent, unlike my baby cousin Nora, and have had it most of their lives. Most tattoo artists have gone to art school and have dabbled in all kinds of visual expression. At some point, ink to skin became their medium of choice, probably because it can be more profitable than many other artful expression. For instance, on any given day, portrait tattoo artist Jamie Ames Navarro at Code of Conduct in the South Loop is booked for three months at a time working every single day from open to close. Some pieces he does cost in the thousands and every client leaves him a cash tip. 
Just because that person picked a medium that doesn't involve selling canvases on the walls of hometown coffee shops doesn't negate the quality of his art. Now, I myself am tattooed. I have four total tattoos, all located on the inside of my left wrist. Here, I'll show you. For those who can't see, my tattoos are of a cupcake, a laurel wreath, the saying, it's whatever, and the signature of my boyfriend from a note he wrote me. Now, I don't claim that any of these are iterations of the Sistine Chapel. In fact, they're kind of dumb. But when I signed a two-book deal with the world's largest publisher, HarperCollins, you better believe I wanted something, a symbol, that I could look at any time, any place, and be able to experience that feeling of utter joy and excitement, and I did it forever. That's the Laurel Wreath. Now, in my book, Hot Mess, there is a scene where my character, who I see myself in a lot, goes on a date at Molly's Cupcakes in Lincoln Park. This is the first date for these two, who go on to be together in the book after shitty previous experiences. This cupcake reminds me to always go after solid relationships. As far as the it's whatever, this is my reminder to cool my jets. The chips don't always fall where I want them, but I will figure it out. I always have and I always will. But I sometimes need that reminder. This tattoo was hand-drawn by my artist, Ellie Sider, at Logan Square Tattoo. He did not use a computer to type this out. He expertly crafted each cursive letter, which frankly, cursive is a dying art to begin with, then transferred it perfectly onto my skin. That's not taking the easy route. He could have typed it in, selected some cursive font, printed it, and put it on. This is someone's art. And as far as my most recent tattoo, Ali Sider did that one as well. Ladies and gentlemen, I am in love. I am really fucking in love. I met my boyfriend originally eight years ago in a bar when we were 23 years old. He caught my eye and we exchanged numbers and that's about it. Flash forward to being 30 years old and we accidentally reconnect on social media and we go out for a drink. The rest, as they say. This man's my soulmate and he's my truest life partner. I can't wait to marry him, but someday for now, I'll take the imperfect rushed signature of one of his letters to me, dash XXMB, and I will have it on my arm. This isn't Allie's spin on Matt's handwriting. This is Matt's signature to a T, including the spot where the ink exploded a little bit on the paper. Again, maybe I don't have a perfect portrait of Marilyn Monroe or the most beautiful, robust David Austin Rose ever to be inked on skin, but these have meaning to me, and these are art to me and to the tattoo artist, which, like I mentioned in the beginning, is the whole reason why tattoos can never be trash. Thank you. Yeah! Outstanding. I just want to point out, it's one of the funny things about this show and curating this show is that one of the things that is interesting is that I pick the topics and the people that argue them don't get to choose which side of the topic they're on. And I have no idea. It's not like I, I had no idea you had tattoos. So when I gave her the topic, art, 
I had no idea she had tattoos, so that was kind of lovely. Do you have any tattoos? I do. Okay. I still think they're trash. All right, there you go. <laughs> He's going to make that argument. So, ladies and gentlemen, Jamie Buell. Give him a hand. Yeah, thank you guys very much. Thanks, Don, for having me. Uh, Emily, thank you so much. Um, I, uh, yeah, that's just, that's where we're starting, and then I just tap it to move it? Just tap it to move it. Okay, great. <clears throat> I really can't believe that I have to come down here to talk about uh, this question of whether or not tattoos are trashy. I thought that we had settled this and just moved on. Um, I thought we all agreed that they were trashy and that that was part of the appeal to them. Uh, and apparently they've been around so long that we started to think they're art. And I think if you ask the average person, they'd say, yeah, you know, they're art, man. Like the skin is a canvas. And to which I'd say you're wrong. And also, why do you sound like you're high? It's a Monday. <laughs> For me, art kind of has to have two functions. And it's around this idea of like revealing and responding, right? Like, the artist has to intentionally reveal something and then, you know, there has to be some kind of response and those two actions kind of have to be linked in a certain way. And I've uh, taken a, a very um, intensive study of tattoos and I have a really firm grasp on contemporary American tattoos as they exist right now and um, I can tell you that no tattoos function this way. Um, you can look at me if you want to but I've brought some examples. Um, they function in kind of three different ways, and I've brought some examples of each one. Uh, this first category is a category I call, jeez. <laughs> uh, this is the worst, these are the worst of the worst. These are your, um, your menacing face tattoos, your racist tattoos, your menacing racist face tattoos, your just, every manner of depravity, and in case your eyes are having a hard time adjusting, that's the Pillsbury Doughboy having sex with Lil Debbie on top of a Hostess cupcake. I'll pause for a moment to allow you to swallow the vomit in your mouth. Tattoos of children by children. Uh, cultural icons repurposed for some kind of means. And oh my god, all the fucking Waldos. Oh, Jesus. These tattoos don't function so much as art as an announcement to the world that you are an ignoramus and that you have possibly dangerous ideas and you have a terrible sense of humor. This isn't art so much as a caution sign. Uh, second category is kind of the tattoos that most of us have, I, the ones that you have, the ones that I have. These I call a permanent note to self. Um, these are the, uh, the lessons that we've learned in life and the experiences that we have survived and uh, the things that we've lost, the people we admire, and the people we love. And these can be really beautiful and sometimes they can be kind of heartbreaking and they can be funny and wise, but they're not art um, because the response is within the artist themselves. Um, they don't focus the attention on me receiving it. They're, 
they're, like you said, right? They're for you. Um, they're for me. And uh, they asked us to find our inner Waldo. <laughs> or they carry some other very, very specific desire of our heart <laughs> that somehow involves a human baby breastfeeding on a mermaid. <laughs> they're the story of our lives, written in all their ungrammatical splendor. And they announced to the world in the words of the great rocker, John Bovey, it's is my life. It's is my life. This last category I call the beauty and the bong water. These are the really intricate designs, just beautiful decorations on the body. Some of them classic. Some of them very ornate, and all of them sometimes just very arresting in their oh, wow. detail and uh, their ambition. Um, but if you take this off the flesh and you put it on a wall, what's the response? You know, for me, it's usually, I think, what Trudy said, wow, and then, whoa. Because that's, I don't know, that's probably $10,000 worth of ink on that guy. Well, you know, you can see his butt crack down there. Um, mostly when I look at these, I just think, man, taking drugs is a lot of fun. <laughs> but don't take too many. <laughs> That's just right. The universe, man, you know, it's like inside us all, if you think about it. Am I right? <laughs> to which I'd say, yes, my stoned friend, you are right. The universe is inside all of us. And it's trying to get out. Because that is the blunt truth, my friends. The universe does not care about your tattoo. It doesn't care about your spiritual journey to the magic kingdom. Or your completely average looking children. Or what you think you may have survived. Because in the end, when the sky is emptied of stars, and the seas are dry, all of our tattoos will look like that. Shriveled and dry, turn into dust, and when that day comes, it's gonna be really hard to find Waldo. Thanks, guys. I'm gonna vote for the art side of it. All right! So Emily Belden wins the round. Give her a hand. Give her a hand. Yeah. And that is Bunkhouse, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you for coming out. It's a Monday night, and you came out to here, so we really appreciate your attendance. Um, let's thank Reagan at the bar. Yeah. yeah. And you know how good that feels to, to clap your hands for Reagan? You know it's even better than clapping your hands for Reagan? A tip, a tip. Because that clap of your hands doesn't pay Reagan's fucking rent. So uh, maybe a tip is good. We like that. We want to thank the Haymarket Pub and Brewery. We love this place. Um, I, did, I, I hosted the month here for five years, and it was so good to come back and do this show. I want to thank all six of my performer writers. Give them a hand. And if you are interested in Literate Ape, go to Facebook slash Literate Ape or go to literateape.com and, uh, and do more.